101.9 you're listening to the new blue review i'm benji shulman and if you're listening to us on 101.9 high fm or the jerusalem post welcome to the show nice to have you with us on the program and we are looking this week at activism the theme of activism how can you go about changing the world making a difference in your community and to highlight this aspect and talk about it a little bit further we haven't just brought an activist into studio we brought the activists activist into studio uh, his name is rabbi waskow and he is a director of the shalom center and he's a reconstructionist rabbi who's written over 20 books on u.s public policy and religious topics and has been doing public advocacy uh, in the non-violent sphere including protests uh, issues around civil liberties full equalities for women and gay people uh, and freedom work for uh, longer than most people have been around and he really knows everything there is to know about the topic and uh, so I'm loved, very excited to welcome to the show uh, Rabbi Oscar. thank you so much for being with us on the New Blue Review Well thank you and shalom to you and all your watchers and listeners <laughs> uh, Perhaps you can start off by telling us uh, how did you get into this uh, sort of thing and how did you become an activist? Well I grew up in a family where my grandfather, who called him in the U.S., he was an immigrant from uh, Ukraine in the Lovogobernia. Uh, he was called himself a socialist. He worked for uh, the uh, presidential campaigns of Eugene V. Debs of the old American Socialist Party. Um, and my father was one of the key organizers of the Baltimore Teachers Union when I was growing up in the days when uh, official theory was that it was really disgusting for teachers to join unions because they were professionals. So my parents were liberal activists uh, and it came in the blood, you might say. Uh, I got, I took a PhD in U.S. history wrote my dissertation on a series of race riots in 1919 and the uh, relationship of police um, racism and police brutality to the uh, explosion of those riots in the summer of 1919. I came to Washington to do research on that dissertation and worked for a couple of years for a U.S. Congress uh, person, congressman from Wisconsin. I was getting my degree at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. So I worked for him for a couple of years and that opened me up to something that included my historical work but went beyond it into making history focus on a better future. Um, became a fellow of a new uh, uh, institution in Washington, the Institute for Policy Studies, which was a center for uh, progressive thought and action. And all that I was doing as a secular activist, uh, casually Jewish. My bar mitzvah had been really boring and stupid, and I shrugged and thought, oh, this ain't for me. Um, and then, then what happened to me was that in early April 1968, uh, on April the 4th, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King was murdered 
the black neighborhoods of Washington and practically every other American city exploded. President Johnson sent the U.S. Army to occupy the city of Washington. They took over schools. They took over traffic uh, uh, circles, uh, truly an occupation. And he imposed a curfew that in theory applied to everybody. But in fact, uh, the police didn't care if white folks were on the streets. There were thousands of black folk arrested with the only charge being that they were violating the curfew by being on the street. Um, so a, a number of us who were white civil rights activists and anti Vietnam War activists put together a network to get food and medical supplies, doctors, lawyers, into the black community, which otherwise was totally cut off by the curfew. So that's what I was doing for a week, uh, day and night for a week after Dr. King was killed. Then came the first night of Pesach, and the only Jewish practice I had kept as a grown-up was the Seder, the Pesach Seder. It was about freedom, it was about justice, and uh, that was serious and worthy. Um, and uh, so that I kept, not not Shoshana Yom Kippur, not Shabbat, but Pesach. So I walked home a week after Dr. King was killed to get ready for the Seder. And by the way, just let me insert, I discovered years later that that Seder in 1968 would have been the first Pesach Seder that Dr. King uh, took part in. He was planning to, had been invited to, and was planning to take part in the Seder uh, at the family of uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and was murdered just a week before. So um, walking home to get ready for the Seder, walking past the U.S. Army with a jeep with a machine gun pointed at the block I lived on in downtown Washington. And my kishpas, my innards, uh, more than my brain, began to say, this is Pharaoh's army, and I'm going home to do the Seder. What does it mean to do the Seder with Pharaoh's army on the streets? And the Seder, which up to that point in my life had been serious, but not explosive, became like a volcano of energy. Uh, it felt like the Seder was on the streets, and the streets were in the Seder. The line that I had read every year since I got old enough to read, in every generation, every human being, the whole door called a Every human being, not just every Jew, every human, uh, is obligated to look upon himself or herself as if we go forth from slavery to freedom, not just our ancestors only. And every year I read that, and okay, so you read it. That year it was, wow, that's true, and here we are, here we are, uh, just as Pesach is beginning, here we are facing uh, the climax of the history of racism and slavery and segregation and lynching in American society uh, just a week after Dr. King was murdered. So the Seder became so powerful for me that I never pushed it away. And that 
fall, I sat down with the Haggadah I was given, Saul Raskin illustrated Haggadah I was given when I became Bar Mitzvah, in one hand, and passages from Dr. King, from Gandhi, uh, from the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and from the uh, slave rebellions of the 1830s and 40s, and from John Brown and Henry David Thoreau defending Brown uh, and committing civil disobedience against an American war, uh, uh, the, the war against Mexico, in the other hand. And I took the, the new, not all new, but new to the Haggadah material, and I wove it into the traditional Haggadah, keeping the story of the ancient liberation from Pharaoh, but interweaving it with the story of the struggle for black liberation in America. Um, and then, a key moment, as I was writing it, I, I, I had written three books by that time, but this one felt like it was writing me. I wasn't really exactly in charge. Uh, and I was so driven by it that I would write a paragraph or two and then call up one of my friends and read it out loud. I'd never done anything like that. That was really odd. And half my friends said, Wasco, that is amazing. That's wonderful. And the other half said, you can't do that. There is a Haggadah. Nobody can write a Haggadah. So when I finished the first draft, I figured, hmm, I better check with some knowledgeable Jew, which I certainly was not, uh, who could tell me, frankly, is this just crazy to do or is it useful? So I got the name of a young rabbi in Washington, D.C., uh, Harold White, Shalom, and asked him, he was, he was clearly, uh, actively engaged against the Vietnam War and for civil rights because it didn't make sense to ask anybody else and I called him up explained what I've been doing and asked him if he, he would give me his frank opinion so he said hmm, sounds interesting, send me a copy so I sent it to him a week later he called up he says, Bosco, I love it it's an activist midrash on the Haggadah and it's such an activist midrash. I wonder if you knew the ancient rabbinic midrash that said that God would not split the Red Sea until an activist walked in up to his nose on the verge of drowning. Only then would God split the sea. It took an activist to do that. And I said, what's some midrash? Because I didn't know. And it's Instead of saying, oh, who needs to talk to an artist like you? Rabbi White said, huh, I see. Well, let me share the Midrash with you. And he actually sent me a little book, Selections from Midrash, um, by uh, Nathan Glazer. And I fell in love with the whole idea that you could take a 3,000-year-old text, give it a twirl, and it would come out new. And also, I was astounded at the idea that it wasn't just rabbis 2,000 years ago who could do this, but I could do it too, according to Rabbi White. So, 
between the intensity and the passion of the justice of the Haggadah and the prophets who I began to gather, learn more about, and the intellectual delightfulness of being able to do Midrash with an ancient text. Those two things came together in my life. The political, you might say, were the passionate and the intellectual, and that was it. I found myself getting deeper and deeper, learning more and more, doing it in all sorts of uh, independent ways. In Washington, turned out there was a group called Jews for Urban Justice. My, uh, my, uh, what we ended up calling the Freedom Seder was published by a national magazine, Ramparts Magazine, uh, and thousands of Jews all over North America read it, got excited about it, uh, said this is a Judaism I could be excited about, which is what was happening inside me too. And Jews for Justice in Washington came to me and said, so great that you wrote it. Now how about a real Seder, not just a Gutta? And we went to the, uh, the pastor of a black church in the heart of Washington, D.C., who I knew from having been a member along with him. He was the chair of the Washington, D.C. delegation to the famous, infamous Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968. He was really a mensch. And, he, and we asked him if we could use the social hall of that church as the place for a Seder, this Freedom Seder on the first yurt site, really, in the Western calendar of Dr. King, April 4th, 1969, which was the third night of Pesach that year. And he said, sure. And we ended up with an amazing, amazing Seder, uh, about 800 people, half of them Jewish, the other half divided between black and white Christians, or not divided, but included black and white Christians. It was carried live on WBAI radio in New York City, and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation uh, recorded it on video and then broadcast excerpts from it across Canada the next Sunday. And inside me, so that was outside, there was a real response. I mean, people got excited. Inside me, I was getting more and more excited about this whole new way of thinking about the world, uh, sort of very ancient and very contemporary at the same time, very inwardly Jewish and in the same breath, outwardly universal, making the Seder not just a Jewish experience, but a universal experience as well. So that was for me the beginning. And we're speaking to Rabbi Waskar. Uh, he is from the Shalom Center. And uh, this is the new Blue Review. We'll be back just after this. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM. You're back with 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the new Blue Review. And we're talking today to Rabbi Dr. Arthur Waskal, he is an activist, he's a, a Jewish activist, he gets involved in all sorts of uh, liberal causes, civil rights issues, and he's talking to us today about uh, some of his life and some of his work. Now, Rabbi, you spoke to us a bit before the break about how you became an activist and some of the issues that led you uh, to 
to to become one and and take this particularly Jewish turn in what you were doing. Uh, you've lived through some of the most tumultuous parts of the twentieth century, uh, certainly the last sort of. Uh, as you say, since 19, uh, late 1960s. Uh, what we're seeing now in America and in the world, do, do you feel like it's gotten better or gotten worse? We are now facing on the planet what we began only barely about 30, 40 years ago to have glimmers of, which is that the way in which some institutions, major corporations, some institutions created by the human species are now in the process of wounding and very possibly wrecking the whole um, weave of life uh, on planet Earth. Uh, the climate crisis is not only real, it's increasingly dangerous, and especially in the United States, especially with the new uh, government in the United States, the U.S., which is the highest um, CO2 emitting uh, nation in the world per uh, capita and only behind China because there's so many more Chinese uh, is refusing to take part even in the agreement that the previous U.S. government agreed to uh, to do what's absolutely crucial to the future of the human race. I mean this is the worst crisis, the most dangerous crisis in human history. And and one of the greatest in the history of the planet, even before the human race existed. So it turns out that Judaism, Torah, is really uh, in a really exciting, interesting, useful uh, place to address this. Because here we are, uh, Jews, throughout the world, a world religion, but a world religion that very unlike the other great world religions, carries within it a very powerful charge of connection with the earth. That's in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew scriptures. The Hebrew Bible emerges as the spiritual experience of what we would now call an indigenous people. Uh, shepherds and farmers who got it that their crucial sacred relationship with God was through their relationship with the earth. And so they celebrated God not the way modern Jews do with words of prayer or words of Midrash, study of Torah, not with words, but still with our mouth, but with what we ate, food at the temple, food from the land of Israel. Uh, not only mutton and beef, but barley and wheat and even pancakes. Uh, people ask me, come on, what, what do you mean pancakes? Well, the Torah says, take a handful of fine flour, mix it with oil, sprinkle spices on it, and turn it to smoke on the altar. That's a pancake, the fried pancake. And it was that way because... They understood that their relationship, eating from the land and make sure, making sure that the land could be fertile, was totally crucial as a sacred practice. So we get the traditional the Torah commanding that every seventh year, 
not only every seventh day, but every seventh year to be a Shabbat, a restful year for the earth as well as for human beings. And that's in chapter 25 of Leviticus of Vayikra. Chapter 26 then says, hmm, so what if you won't let the earth rest? What will happen? And the answer is, what will happen is the earth will rest on your head. It will rest through famine, through drought, through flood, through plague, through mass refugees. It says exile, but that's what we would call a flood of refugees. When you read chapter 26, it sounds like climate scientists today saying what will happen if we don't get it together to stop forcing huger and huger amounts of CO2 into the atmosphere. So this speaks to us, and it seems to me the Jewish community has both a responsibility and an opportunity to draw on what Torah teaches about the crucial nature of our relationship between, in Hebrew, Adam, humanity, and Adamah, the earth. And it's no accident those words are so closely related. I mean, listen to them. Adam, Adamah. And in English we say the environment, but really not a good description. The environment means it's out there somewhere in the environs. Adam, Adamah is like this, the intertwining of humanity and the humus, or you might say the earth and us earthlings. The words, if you could say it that way in English, for English those are specialized odd words. In Hebrew, Adam, Adamah are the regular words for earth and human being. Now, Rabbi, I do want to ask you something else uh, about that. Uh, you know, you, you, you've spoken about the spirituality aspect of the environment uh, in Judaism, which I think is uh, uh, quite crucial. But you've also got a, a bit of a, a political program to, to try and address some of the environmental challenges. Uh, you've talked about it as the mom-pop program uh, before. Can, can you talk to us about what you see and how you see that affecting change? Sure. Uh, let me just say that's mm-hmm. only one. Let me say what that one is. Uh, there's been this whole discussion about getting institutions of all kinds, colleges, churches, synagogues, uh, denominations, to divest from investing in fossil fuel companies and putting the money instead into uh, renewable energy, uh, 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 solar and wind energy. So the word divestment, became trait in American Jewish life because of the campaign by some people to get various people and companies to divest from investing in Israel. So we started thinking, it's not that divestment as itself is wrong, it's the word that has become so freighted with badness in the Jewish community. Uh, and thinking about how to say it more accurately and and also taking into account that it's part of about, about taking money away, but it's also about putting money into it. So we came up with move our money, protect our planet. And then 
one of the members of the Strong Center's board, jotting this down in a board meeting, said, oh, look, move our money. The initials, the Rosh Hashanah, the initials are POM, and protect our planet. The initials are POP. So this is the mom and pop strategy. It is one, but not the only one. And to tell the truth, I just this morning got an email from a synagogue in Brooklyn that said it is about to make the decision. It has made the decision. It's about to take the action to move its money out of banks that invest in uh, fossil fuel companies and put it the money into life-giving enterprises, and they asked me if any other synagogue, so far as I know, has done it. And sadly and joyfully at the same time, I have to say, I think they're the first, which will be wonderful. But there are other things that we could do, are doing, just this past summer at the National Havara Institute and at uh, uh, Jewish Renewal um, community called Ruach Aretz, Spirit of the Earth. I led courses at both places on prayer as if the earth really matters. Prayer because the earth really matters. And we talked about, and in both cases, the classes themselves, after discussion through most of the week, the classes themselves developed serious Jewish prayer services that are much more earth-oriented than the conventional services and uh, are deeply rooted in Jewish texts. So that was wonderful. One of them was a service to be used for Tuba'ah, the full moon of the month we're still in, six days after Tisha B'Av, a day of rejoicing and a day of uh, the Midrash saying that this was a day during the wilderness, before even the before even the people had entered the land, when they were so frightened about reports of how uh, wonderful the land was, they got scared and didn't want to go. And on Tishabov, according to the rabbis, that's when the decision was made. The result was that uh, the people were warned that all those who refused to go, uh, who had grown up in Egypt, would die before the people entered the land. It took 40 years, um, and uh, every Tishabab, according to the Midrash, uh, the whole people would degrade themselves, lie in their graves, and after Tishabab, it turned out one fortieth of the people had died. And they did that for 40 years. Um, at the end of the 40 years, uh, they all, not not just 39, 40 of them, but everybody came out of their graves alive. They thought maybe it was a big mistake in their calendar, so they went into their graves again. And when the full moon came on the 15th of Av, they said, oh, no mistake in the calendar. Everybody who's alive will now be able to enter the land. It was like a rebirth from the earth's graves becoming not graves, but birthing places from Adam, from Adama into Adam. So we created a service for Tuba'ab uh, that really drew on this um, joyful 
recognition of connection with the land that what had been so frightening 40 years before then became inviting and respectful. Uh, so that's so prayer as if the earth matters. We think that's an important part of, of inspiring people to act. So you're listening to the new Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is Rabbi Dr. Arthur Waskow uh, talking about uh, activism and at the last uh, point we've been talking to him particularly about the environment and uh, things that people can do. We'll be back right after this. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM. You're back with 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review. We've been talking to Dr. Rabbi Arthur Waskow uh, about activism and uh, particularly environmentalism in the last few minutes. Rabbi, I want to come back to the environmental issues with you uh, in a moment, but I also want to get some, some, also some a historical context from you, if you don't mind. Uh, at at one point, uh, you were involved with some pretty outsider politics, uh, as you said, the civil rights movement, uh, and and through this, you actually uh, came to know some of uh, the the issues surrounding uh, surrounding uh, defeating apartheid South Africa, uh, and uh, later on in the nineties, even met uh, with some of the delegations when perhaps some of the mainstream community uh, in uh, America uh, wasn't. Uh, so connected to these issues. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, that was one time when, in fact, the Jewish community joined in divestment from banks like Chase Manhattan uh, that were investing in apartheid South Africa. Um, and I was involved, actually, I think my second arrest, my first one was a, a, a desegregation sit-in, sit walk-in at an amusement park in Baltimore where I had grown up. I was not living there anymore, but I heard about this and felt drawn uh, to go back to Baltimore to do that. But my second arrest was on the steps of the Chase Manhattan Bank in, I think, 1965, uh, demanding that the bank stop investing in apartheid South Africa. And I took part in the anti-apartheid actions here for a number of years. Uh, the so that that was a piece of my important work, really, even before I got deeply involved in Jewish life. Uh, but then, as I became more deeply uh, Jewishly involved, and the Jewish community became more uh, attuned to the question of apartheid in South Africa, that my own development and the community's development uh, tended to merge. I, I do want to come back to the climate question because we've now, the Shalom Center, oh, and by the way, let me just say, uh, our website is the Shalom Center, starting with the T-H-E, shalomcenter.org. And there's a great treasury of material there on a number of aspects of uh, Torah applied to social justice, peacemaking, and healing the earth. Um, so we've now undertaken a new approach to the whole climate question. Most of the climate um, activism in the U.S. has focused around uh, slowing down, ideally halting the emission of carbon dioxide, CO2, and methane into the atmosphere so as not to make the heating, burning 
I people call it global warming. I don't call it warming. Warming is nice. Warming is pleasant. I call it global scorching, which is much more honest to what it actually means. Uh, so the the most activism is focused on well trying to stop the global scorching where it is, uh, and now we are beginning. We the Shams are beginning to work with scientists and with other religious communities, not only the Jewish community, around the possibility which the scientists say they're beginning to figure out how they could do, of kicking a trillion tons of CO2 out of the Earth's atmosphere, putting it back into the Earth, depositing it where it won't get burnt or emitted again, and thereby being able to restore Earth's climate to for our children and our grandchildren to what it was like for our parents and our grandparents, especially perhaps with much more justice in the world in which we do that than some of our parents and grandparents actually experienced in their generation. This seems to really connect with a wonderful, uh, kind of fascinating passage from the very last of the ancient Hebrew prophets, Malachi, his uh, prophetic vision ends by saying, I, he's speaking for God, I, God, will send you Elijah the prophet to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to the parents, lest I come upon the earth with utter destruction. That's amazing. 2,500 years ago. And what's more, Malachi, earlier in chapter 3, said, a day is coming that will burn like a furnace. And then Malachi says, the remedy for that day that burns like a furnace will be the wings of a son, S-U-N, a son of justice. Now, you could read that, and I guess this is Midrash, but it seems to me almost uncanny uh, that 2,500 years ago there's this passage. You could read that as saying, there will come a day when the earth is burning like a furnace. Uh, and you can deal with it, you can remedy it, you can heal it by turning to the solar energy and wind energy that is created by the beating wings of the sun and the rays of the sun. Well, okay, so that's one major step. And one thing the Shalom Center has begun to do is to organize uh, congregations and neighborhoods to create uh, neighborhood solar energy co-ops where groups of families get together and households get together and also big institutions like a synagogue or a church get together to solarize not only, let's say, the roof of the big synagogue, but the roofs of its members in their own homes. Uh, and that means that we're able to do something that, first of all, brings people together in neighborhoods to be really neighborly. And second brings people together in a way that uh, strengthens 
the solar energy industry and weakens the coal and oil industry, which is important if we're ever going to be able to make the shift out of the fossil fuel economy and, and strengthen the new economy of wind and solar energy. It also reduces the likelihood of asthma attacks in neighborhoods, mostly poor and often black neighborhoods in the U.S., where there have been put uh, coal-burning uh, power plants and oil refineries that create many much greater incidents of uh, asthma in those neighborhoods. And it, of course, reduces the emission of CO2 into the atmosphere. And it begins to create a political base for further action to move. And the further action at this stage that we think is clearly necessary is to put together a public demand for putting the money into getting that trillion tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere, restoring the atmosphere to a healthy place, restoring our climate to a healthy place. It sounds, uh, Rabbi, it sounds like an absolutely uh, fantastic vision, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, some synagogues are starting to get moving on that, and that you've had uh, uh, people uh, who are engaging that, uh, really getting involved, as you say, not just dealing with the energy crisis, but also with the neighborliness uh, crisis. I think it's uh, absolutely beautiful. Uh, if you don't mind, I, I'd, I'd like to ask you something uh, slightly more personal. Uh, you've spoken before about the impact of uh, Shabbat, on, on your activism. Uh, could you talk to us a bit about that uh, and how keeping Shabbat uh, has been entwined with the activism that you do? If I had kept on being the secular activist I was before 1968, and that meant ignoring Shabbat, and if I had kept having to face the real traumas of American society, not only right now, but several times over the past 40, 50 years. Without Shabbat, I think I'd probably be dead. I think Shabbat has been for me the place of life renewal, of joyfulness, of knowing the world can be perfect right now. Yes, I know that Shabbat will end and there's work to do again to make the world more decent. But for 25 hours, uh, joy, love, uh, learning in a kind of open-ended conversational way, not to do something, but simply to be someone. Um, so for me, Shabbat has been absolutely crucial that way. And of course, it's with a community, not only with my wife, my family, but with the community that we do this. Every Shabbat, uh, now, I meet with about 15 or 20 people in the Jewish Renewal Congregation of Philadelphia, uh, Penny Or. And by the way, I remember you said I was a Reconstructionist rabbi. Well, I wasn't ordained by the Reconstructionist movement. I was ordained by a trans-denominational din made up of one... Um, neo-Hasidic Rebbe, I guess, who grew up in Lubavitch and, as he said, didn't quit, wasn't thrown out, but graduated. One 
a conservative, capital C conservative rabbi, one reform rabbi, and a leading Jewish feminist theologian wasn't a rabbi. Uh, and that was in the context of the movement for Jewish renewal, much newer in American society even than Reconstructionism. And when people ask me, well, Jewish renewal, that doesn't describe very much, what do you mean? I ask if they can get their heads around feminist Catholicism. And most of it, they say, no, but that's what it is. A Catholicism that's not only egalitarian between women and men, but also much more communal. So it's not only the Rebbe who gets to have direct contact with God, but the community can as well. Anyway, out of the Jewish renewal, every Shabbat morning, I spend an hour uh, in a conversation, which I weave. I don't teach it. I don't lead it. I don't start with a Vartorah telling them what the right answer is. But we choose a passage from the Torah portion of the week, and then we talk about it. Uh, and what we talk especially about what it means in our lives. I mean, for example, if we were reading the passage about the uh, Israelites standing on the edge of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army behind and the sea in front, I might invite people to think about moments in their lives when they are facing what looks like an impossible choice. How did it feel? What did they do? How did they decide what to do? And how do we repeat the Torah pass passage as inside us and us inside the Torah passage? Not just an interesting piece of text from long ago, but it's us in it and is in us. So every Shabbat I do that, and it's wonderful for me. I end up feeling really lifted spiritually, and then later that lifting can have political and um, political effect for me. But in the meantime, it's the conversation rooted in Torah and opening up to our own uh, our own Torah that for me, becomes a really crucial life-giving moment. Uh, Rabbi, I'm afraid, uh, and on that note, we're going to have to end it for today. I haven't even asked half the questions I had wanted to, uh, but it's been an absolutely fascinating interview. Uh, won't you give us again, uh, if people want to see some of your work uh, at the Shalom Center or any of your other uh, campaigns, where can they find you? Uh, the website, the, T-H-E, shalomcenter.org. Oh, well, there you go. Go have a look at the website if you're interested in uh, the environment or any of the history or uh, any of the campaigns that you may have heard about uh, today. Rabbi, thank you so much for joining us on the New Blue Review, and please keep up all the good work that you've been doing. Thanks very much, and shalom again to you and all your folks. Yeah, there we go. Shalom. It brings us to the end of the show for today. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you uh, have any questions or comments, please feel free. You can tweet me Benji, at Benji underscore Shulman or uh, Benji at chai.co.za. We're happy to take any of your comments. And until next week, Shalom. <laughs>